Our first lesson is taken from Genesis 12. You'll find this in our Bibles on page 8. I'm just going to read the first few verses rather than all nine, but uh, this is a very familiar text. It really is where mission explicitly stated begins in the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The word of the Lord. Our epistle lesson is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You'll find this in our Bibles on page 1015. And if you're a Christian, you should never hear these words just as white noise, but as what God is telling you about who you are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have receive mercy. The word of the Lord. And our text for study this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, found on page 835. This familiar great commission, as Matthew tells it to us, And I would encourage you, if you are a Christian and you don't yet know this great commission, memorize it. Whatever is your favorite translation, memorize this. You should know this the way that uh, those of us that were in the service decades ago could still give our serial number. Uh, You should know this because this is your mission. Jesus entrusted it not only to the disciples that were there with him, but through them, he gave this commission to every one of us. And if we ask, what is the meaning of my life? What has God called me to be? It starts here. You'll never understand it until you define it from the Great Commission. That, by the way, is why I always always start getting tired when people say, our church needs a new mission statement. I know we do it. I do it because I'm part of an American church, and American churches think they have to have mission statements. The only churches in history that have ever thought that, by the way. Because most churches have realized we have one. It was given to us. This is it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age, the gospel of Christ. We are looking these four Sundays leading up to Mission Conference at the four commitments that we call for every year uh, at Mission Conference, but that I confess in all my years here, I've never taken one after another with you to uh, really unpack and examine and say, where do we get these from Scripture and what, what are they calling us to do and to be? So last week we heard the first, which is pray. And we saw, we heard Jesus' words at the end of Matthew chapter 9, where he said the fields, well, he, in another text said the fields are white for harvest. In Matthew chapter 9, he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we looked at statistics that we'll look at again in a few minutes, but statistics that should tell us that after 2,000 years, that harvest is even greater. In fact, it's just about twice the size that it was in Jesus' day. Actually, it's far vaster than that. But if we just look at the people beyond the reach of the gospel, the unevangelized of the earth, that's, as we saw last week, 1.5 billion people. In Jesus' day, when he gave the Great Commission, it's estimated that there were only about half that many people living on the entire earth. Now in our day, there are 7.5 billion. Go ahead and put those up, Stephen. I'm already talking about it. Last week, I was floundering around a little, so I thought, okay, I'm going to use this. I couldn't get my head around all those Hundreds of millions, I kept wanting to make them hundreds of thousands. But total world population today, 7.5 billion. Of that, self-identified Christians, 2.5 billion. Let me stop right there. Self-identified Christian means anybody living in a country with a big church where he was taken up or she was taken up and baptized as a baby and maybe got married in a church and maybe occasionally goes Christmas and Easter, hopes to be buried out of the church is a self-identified Christian. Now, we know that the overwhelming majority of so-called self-identified Christians have no idea what the gospel teaches and that the gospel is offering them new birth in Jesus Christ and a living relationship and being filled with the Spirit and going on mission with the Lord. That's what it means in the Bible. Being a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus, not just to have been baptized and go to the Lord's Supper now and then. So there's a huge mission field right there, even in the self-identified Christians. But they at least have access. There are churches around them. There are people who do know the gospel. There's opportunity. So we're not focusing so much on them right now. And then evangelical Christians within that 2.5 billion are 750 million. I kept trying to make that 750,000 last week. 750 million evangelicals. And by that, some of you emailed me, said, you know, evangelical in our culture has kind of a negative political context. I'm using it in its historic sense. I don't want to lose this good word because the word evangelical comes from the New Testament word euangelion for gospel. It means people of the gospel. It has meant that historically within the church. And even in Roman Catholicism, They speak of evangelical, not evangelical Protestants, but evangelical Catholics as their people who are passionate about the gospel. They use it 
in a positive sense. So evangelicals are people who are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who believe that you must be born anew of God's Spirit in order to be God's child. That it's those who've been born anew who really trust Him and are therefore justified and enveloped in the family and all that goes with that. And who believe that we have been entrusted with the message of salvation for those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel has been given to us. We are God's only plan for reaching the world with the good news of the gospel. 750 million who profess to believe that. The unevangelized people, 5 billion who do not identify as Christian. Some follow Islam, some Buddhism, some Hinduism, some other religions or no religion. And within there, huge mission field. But one and a half billion people have never heard of Jesus. They're beyond the reach of the gospel. They're called unevangelized because some of them may have less than 2% who have identified themselves as Christians, but there are no churches, there's no outreach, there's no mission to them. And then there are within that one and a half billion even another group of people who are just called unreached. They're beyond the reach. There's no word of Jesus translated into their language. There is no one of their tribe or tongue or language who has ever known him. Now, this is the really distressing thing. Protestant missionaries today, 140,000. Thank God for 140,000 willing to go out to other cultures, other places on mission. But the reality, again, is that that's Protestants, it's not evangelical. And many of those people are good people who've gone out to do good things. They're in relief and development. They're doing all kinds of good things for people. But many of them, by their own admission, do not believe that anyone needs to hear the message of Jesus. They just need to be loved well and become people of love. But they no longer really believe in the necessity of salvation through the gospel of Jesus. And the tragic truth is that so much of what calls itself the Protestant church today, which broke from, the, from Rome for the sake of the gospel, now no longer even believes or teaches or requires of its pastors that they believe or teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so within that 140,000, there are many just good people by nature who've gone out to do good things. And they're doing good things but they're not accompanying it with the message of Jesus. So far fewer than that. Percentage of missionaries seeking the unevangelized. 90% of all missionaries go to people who are already evangelized and already have churches. Now, I'm not criticizing them for a moment. Thank God for them. They're usually going in response to the request of those people saying, would you come help teach us this or provide this thing that we don't have? So they're going in obedience to God's call. Praise God for them. But where are those that are supposed to be going to the one and a half billion beyond the reach of any missionary? 10% of all missionaries are targeting those unreached people. And the truly, completely unreached, only 3% of all missionaries. So, That's the tragic state. Can we not say 
certainly as much as when Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It is true today. And as we saw last week, Jesus' response was not to say, so let's get a bunch of Americans together to strategize and figure out how to solve this. Jesus said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to raise up and thrust out, not just send out, it's translated sweetly as send out, but the word I said last week for send out is the same word that's used by Matthew when Jesus casts out demons. He didn't just send out the demons, I'll send out them. He cast them out. And that's the same thing that Jesus said, we're to pray that the Lord will just grab some of his people and thrust them on out. The reason for that one and a half billion people is because we have not prayed earnestly the Lord of the harvest to do this. In those times and seasons where people have given themselves to that kind of extraordinary prayer, mission movements have begun just to flow from their nations to the world. That's the history of global mission. Okay, we talked about that last week. And in the weeks to come, I'm hoping that we will clearly provide you with opportunities, both individually and corporately, to engage much more deeply in that kind of prayer for the mission of the church. But today we look at the second, the call to go. Two things I want to say first. We got that, of course, from this text. Jesus said to his disciples, final words to him there in Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go. Two things. First of all, every time I've ever taught this over the last 27 years that I've been with you, I've made mention of the fact that in the Great Commission, in Matthew's Gospel, there is only one imperative. I'm talking about in Matthew's Greek, not the way it's translated. The one imperative is make disciples. And then there are three participles that tell us how we're to make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching. And that is linguistically true. But now I come to you in all humility to confess that the people who translate our Bibles and who uniformly always translate the first participle as go have forgotten more Greek than I will ever know. The reason that they do it is because Jesus was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. Matthew is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, translating it accurately for us. The force of what Jesus is saying is clearly You're to disciple those nations. You can't do it if you just say, well, as we go, we're going, you know, if I go, when I go, get around to going. The force of it is disciple the nations. The only way to disciple the nations is to get going. I love the translation of F.D. Bruner, who's done a magnificent two-volume commentary on Matthew's Gospel. He says, yeah, this is a... Uh, This is a participle, and we can talk about going. But he said what Jesus meant clearly was move out. Move out and make disciples of all nations. 
And that's what we're looking at today. That's the first thing. The second thing that I would say preliminarily is this. Every time since I've been here at least that we've ever talked about these four commitments to pray, go, serve, and give. We've always said, now three of these are for all of us, praying, serving, giving. Some of you may be feeling the tug of God's Spirit to get up and go cross-culturally. And if that's happening to you, you get in touch with us, and we want to work with you and help prepare you for that or help you in further discernment of it. Again, I come to you humbly apologizing. (laughs) The more I've prayed about this, meditated on this text, the more I've realized that that's misleading. Jesus didn't say, you know, some of you here may be feeling a tug toward cross-cultural mission. And if that's you, I want to talk to you just before I ascend um, because there's some further thing. He said to every one of them, make disciples of the nations. So what does that mean? What what do we make of that for those of us who really believe that God has called us to be right here, where we are, who's given us ministries here? Perhaps we are praying earnestly or we are resolved now to begin praying earnestly. And we are giving even more than we ever thought we'd give to global missions. And we are concerned and we are learning, but we really believe where God wants us. What are we to do with this call to go make disciples of all nations? Next slide. Ah, thank you. You're ahead of me, Steve. The call to go. Perhaps not very far at all. We frequently hear, at least those of us who read these kinds of things, frequently hear that 60% of all the unevangelized people, that's the 7,000 People groups currently unreached by the gospel, that's the 1.5 billion individuals currently unreached by the gospel. 60% of them live in areas of the world where missionaries are not permitted. So what in the world are we to do? Well, two things that aren't usually said along with that. That means 40% live in places where missionaries can go. That's pretty good. And of that 60% closed to missionaries, most of those areas are not closed to Christian people who have legitimate reason for being there on business or professionally, going there, staying there. I'm not talking about what for a while, unfortunately, was uh, used Uh, by some people to try to break into these areas, and they meant well, and I commend them. They were more courageous than I, but sort of made-up businesses. Uh, Yeah, uh, we'll say we do this. Here are the cards. We'll we'll go there on that purpose, but we're really there only doing mission. Now, imagine, imagine if a Muslim family moved in next door to you, and you went out and greeted them, welcomed them, brought them a pie, said, so what do you do? And they said, oh, Dad's... uh, Dad does sourcing. He does. Sourcing? What's he sourcing from here? Oh, he's, you know, actually beaded bags made by the Native Americans. He's shipping around the world. Really, how's that going? Um, You never see Dad going to work. You never see him leaving. Always home, studying. And then 
They invite you to dinner, and you think, well, this is going to be fun, get to know about their culture. You go in, and he has the Quran open, and you know, sort of has everything prepared, and he says, you know, eat a little food with us, and I'd like to begin to introduce you to the Quran and tell you about my faith. Well, you're going to go back home and notify everybody in the neighborhood, they're Muslim missionaries. You know, don't go to dinner unless you want to. You know, that's what we've done. And of course, it's closed doors. But there are legitimate business reasons for going if you are willing to go in international business or professionally and live among people as a Christian, authentically, showing them the love of Christ, building honest, real relationships, speaking from the heart, realizing that you are ultimately there to make disciples in God's good time and God's good way. But as we'll see in a minute, you can't make disciples unless you are a disciple. But for those of us right here, 22 million internationals visit America every year. 22 million come here. Some of them come to Knoxville. And look at this, 630,000 are university students. We have a lot of them here. Some of them here, thank God. Here's the sad part. 25% are from countries that prohibit American missionaries, but 80% of them will return home without ever having been invited into an American home. They're here, they live among us, they're lonely, they're open to friendships, and most of us are just too busy living our lives to realize the people that are right here. If only we prayed earnestly and listened to the Lord as he directed our hearts. 90% of those international students will return home without ever being reached by any Christian ministry. And if you don't think that's strategic, that last statistic, 40% of the heads of state around the world once studied in America. I'll never forget hearing as a child of the number of leaders of communist China, the people around Mao, who had studied in America and whose stories of studying in America had made them bitter because they were not welcomed, they were not accepted, they were not invited into homes. They felt like pariahs and so left America, bitter toward Americans and Christians and cap brothers and sisters, the world comes to us every day. And in Knoxville, the world comes to our university. And we support several international ministries there. That's an opportunity for every one of us to find out more and engage. If your heart is touched by that, you let us know, and we'll tell you how to engage there. Thanks, Stephen. But, make no mistake, it's not merely about friendship. It is about making disciples. It's not simply about making a nervous gospel presentation. It's about making disciples. Well, how do you do that? What's a disciple? Jesus said, this is how you make disciples. You baptize them into the family. You bring them in. You call them as Jesus did. He said, come, follow me. It's not enough to just have a conversation with me by the side of the road. You want to know me? You're going to have to come live with me. You're going to have to follow me. 
He spent three years with the 12 before he ever asked them at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, who do you, who do you think I am? Have you figured it out yet? Three years of listening to his teaching, watching him work. It was life on life. A disciple is someone who is walking life on life with Jesus. And you can't, and some of you won't like this or won't buy it, but I'm telling you, you can't do that unless you are all in in a local church. That's why the only way we reach the nations is by planting churches. I get these things all the time from guys saying, God's using me so mightily, help support my next trip to India. Every time I go, I speak to 10,000 people, and last time 5,000 people accepted Christ. 5,000 people born again. I only spent 5,000. Look at what this cost per soul. I've been to India enough to know that every time any religious person goes to India, villagers flock to hear them, to hear the latest version, the latest twist on the gods. This unique, maybe this will add a little something to my life. I'll add this to the, to the pantheon of gods. And they all go forward willing to take it. It's a polytheistic world. One more God, great, it can't hurt. But they don't go back to a church. They don't go back to be discipled. They go back to lostness, and somebody's raising money off it, probably sincerely thinking they're doing something. That's not what he said. Make disciples. You make disciples within the context of a local church with people who are life on life together. The New Testament warns against John in his letters, warns against these wanderers who go congregation to congregation. Elders and deacons are responsible for the lives and the souls and the destinies of specific people who are bound together in covenant in a local church, living life on life, growing together. If you're not doing that, you're not a New Testament Christian. Maybe you were ill-taught but to be part of a local gathering, committed life on life to one another. That's how you grow. And he says within that you are teaching, teaching them to obey. Not just teaching for cognitive, the great danger of seminary is we learn so much. But all it does is, is confuse and, and bewilder unless it's being lived out, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, said Jesus. It's the obedience of faith. Disobedient Christians are the cause of people actually taking seriously the writings of the late Christopher Hitchens or you know, Sam Harris or Denkins or Dawkins, the four horsemen. In places where the church is vibrant and alive and Christians are not perfect, are living together and repentant and, and caring for one another and caring for those who would be their enemies, where love is flowing, the love of Christ, and lives are being transformed. Those kinds of arguments have no power at all because the living reality of disciples makes all the difference. And that's what we're called to be and to make by loving and embracing and drawing people in and saying, would you walk this way with me? Would you come and see whether these things be true? Come and live with me. I won't do this perfectly, but 
but you'd better see me grow. And if you don't see me growing, you call me on it. Because if I'm a man or a woman in Christ, I shall be growing. Do you see how different a New Testament Christian is from the idea of, oh yeah, I'm a member at Cedar Springs. Yeah, I go to the mission conference once or twice if they've got a good speaker. And I, I try to give a little, if I've got something, uh, you know, give a little extra. What is your life and my life about? Whatever else we do, whether we're teachers or plumbers or truck drivers or IT people or unemployed or homemakers, our job is to make disciples. Why did God give you children? To make disciples of people. Oh my goodness. For some of us, that's been an enormous challenge. And yet, the greatest joy of all. Why did he put you in a particular neighborhood to try to love those right around you well as a child of God so that he would open the way? How much can I say freely? A neighbor whom I tried over 20 years to talk to got shoved away out of fear because knowing what I do. When he had a heart attack, God, would you please come? Come now. We are where we are for the sake of those whom he's placed us among, the people where you work. So how am I to go if God has called me to be here? Well, huge opportunities in town, but this is where it starts. This is what it means for a disciple to go. It starts when you wake up. Train yourself on first waking to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now, here today, live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, as I greet my wife or my husband or my children, or if I'm living with roommates, as I greet my roommates, let me realize that I am to be a vehicle of your Holy Spirit. The words I say, the things I do, my attitudes, my plans today. Most of us get up and just get going, and what's my plan? We look at the iPhone, okay, I gotta be here, gotta be there. Lord, help, I got a big one coming up at nine. I could use a little help, uh, you know? God exists to wait with bated breath for whatever's the next thing I plan to do. No! Go make disciples. That's why you and I are born again of God. That's why we're His. We're on mission. And everyone we meet, that's why we need, because we do fail and because we do sin, if we're to follow Jesus, they're going to see us repenting. They're going to see our tears of sadness when we go to them and say, I can't believe I spoke to you that way. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I acted like that. I want to follow Jesus, and I can't do it in my own strength. I read just yesterday a young pastor, supposedly evangelical, saying, Jesus is our substitute. He is not our example. If he were our example, we'd all be undone because he's perfect and we're not. Therefore, end of argument. Now, Jesus would have been real surprised to hear this young pastor say that because Jesus said, come, follow me. Peter, in his first epistle, said, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Can we do it in our own strength? Absolutely not. In me, 
dwells no good thing but this, His Spirit within me. I'm crucified, but I live, not I. Christ is living in me. Paul wrote to the Philippians, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling because it's God at work within you, willing and doing His good pleasure. We go to work. We're on mission. We go play. We're on mission. When that captivates us, everything changes. And suddenly we realize why we are. And we know that we're His. Go. Go make disciples of all nations, beginning with your own, beginning with your family, beginning with your friends, beginning with your neighbors, beginning with those you work and play with. That's your mission field. Every one of us is on mission. And if we care about nothing but all the woes that break our hearts, those woes, and we should seek to meet need, real needs, and and care for things that are broken, for the environment, for people, not knocking that, to be a taste of what's coming. But ultimately, it will all only be made right when when Christ comes again, as West reminded us in our worship. We live waiting for him to come again in glory and make all things new, wipe away tears. Then the oppressors, the violent, the cruel will be judged. Justice will be done. And then God's people, the broken, the hurting, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those persecuted, then our Father will vindicate us. And the only way for that day to come, Jesus said, is first this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every ethnos, every ethnic group. And then, Jesus said, the end will come. Only when that scene in Revelation is ready to take place, where they're gathered round the throne and sing the new song to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and open all its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That's our destiny. If you want to be part of it, you can be part of it now. Go make disciples. And he's promised he'll be with you to the end of the age. Christian, stand. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.